Chapter 13, we will finish today the book of Nehemiah. I could easily do two or three messages, but being that this is the end of the summer, we're going to be done today. Where did the summer go? Again, this is our final study. Let me just say a couple things. I'm going to be uh, in the next six weeks out of the pulpit four of the six weeks. No, I'm not taking an extended vacation. I will be on vacation one week. But there's a number of things that I've got to do as far as planning for home group and uh, leadership. There's a personal project I need to do. Uh, it has to do with the church. And um, again, we're going to be having Missions Month, two weeks in uh, the second two weeks in uh, September. Uh, we have that uh, the special speaker next week. Tell me again that the guy's name, uh, the name, the name of the band. Okay, didn't hear it, but uh, by the way, soft, it's not rocky, I wonder who he was referring to, but anyways, not right. uh, but anyways, if you'd be praying for me, again, if you're on my prayer list, I'll probably be sending, I was going to send it out first or last week, but I, I'll probably send out a little bit more uh, this week, but if you want to be on uh, praying for me, especially during these next six months, you can just email me, jprince at aabible.org, and uh, and uh, I can, I'll send you periodically uh, things that I'm going on in my life, so if you want to be specific in your prayer requests, thank you many of you who have already uh, said that you would be praying for me. Um, the other thing is, too, I'm going to be studying up to, we're going to be starting a series on Revelation. So come after missions month sometime in the, probably at the end of October, there's a couple messages I'd like to give, but then we're going to get into Revelation, uh, especially hitting chapters 1 through 3. Um, and then 4 and 5, and then 6 through 19 will probably be pretty quick. I'm not going to identify the Antichrist for you, but we'll give characteristics. And then we're going to hit heaven and hell quite hard. So um, again, it will be an extended series, but not a 10-year series. Um, okay, so we begin our last study here in Nehemiah, and it reminds me of a politician from America. And, it has to do with perseverance. This guy was persevering. Who was it? Name this politician. He was born in 1809 and suffered his first major defeat in 1832. Already, some of you already know. A year in which he lost his job, was defeated in his first political race, a bid for the state legislature. The next year, 1833, he failed in business. In 1835, two years later, his childhood sweetheart died. A year later, 1836, he had a nervous breakdown. Things aren't looking up for this guy. <laughs> in 1843, he was defeated in a bid for the United States Congress. Five years later, he tried again and again was defeated. In 1849, he decided to become a land officer but was rejected. In 1854, he was defeated in a race for the United States Senate. In 56, he lost the nomination for vice presidency. In 1858, he was again defeated in a race for the Senate. A list of defeats like this would be enough to discourage any man. But this is what he often said. I will always do my best, no matter what, and someday my chance will come. <laughs> and one day it did. And in 1861, Abraham Lincoln became the 16th president of the United States. Now, I like that story because it's a story of perseverance. Isn't it? Perseverance. 
See, a lot of people start quick, start good. You know, they start running the Christian life very fast, but peter out at the end. But here's a man of perseverance. And I would say this, that perseverance is a true mark of a spiritual leader. Persevering. Persevering no matter what God allows in your life. And for this man, Nehemiah, he was a perseverer. I mean, again, we've had other men who were perseverers. Other women that we could name. Um, just even in the political realm, uh, Churchill. Sir Winston Churchill was one of those men. I was, uh, you know, he, he had that, uh, that famous speech, Never give up. And he said it like, like ten times. Never. And, and the whole speech is like 40 minutes. It's only one little part. That, never, 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 never give up. Actually, that speech was given at a college in October 29, 1941. I mean, <laughs> Germany, Nazism, <coughs> was on the verge of overwhelming the, the island, right? The island across the pond. And yet he drew a, a, a nation together and said, we will not give up. Even if just one man is left standing, we will fight. That, that's how it has to be in the Christian life, right? Sometimes we want a herd mentality. Herd mentality, you know, if we're all going the same direction, great. No, no. Sometimes it takes just one guy, one man, one, even woman. We see that of the judges. To stand up and to do what's right. And again, we see this with Nehemiah. I mean, we've had a, a great study. This has been one of the most phenomenal studies in my own personal life. Just how the Lord wove things together, both in my personal life and then watching Nehemiah. I, I just love this guy. He's such a man's man. I mean, he just does it. But he's a godly man. I mean, go all the way back to chapter 1 and he hears about the plight of Jerusalem. You know, it had been dis in disarray for more than 100 years after the Babylonian, not only captivity, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. First thing he does, he doesn't grab a plow, he doesn't grab a sword. He gets on his knees, he prays for months, gets the plan together, asks the king, travels months, because it takes months to go from Susa to Jerusalem. Has a plan in mind, walks around the city. I'm just kind of rehashing. But the point is, he's focused on God. Like 13 times in Scripture, we're going to see four of them today. Nehemiah prays. You see Nehemiah praying and praying and praying and praying. He's a godly leader. But he's a persevering leader. That's why, he, by the way, he's godly. That's why he perseveres. Because who he's seeking to please is God himself. He's not trying to seek. He's not trying to find the pleasure of man. He's not trying to be a man pleaser. He just kept fighting his battles to the very end. After building the walls in 52 days, he brings the people together. They have a great revival. And he stays as governor in the land for 12 years. And we're going to look at that in a moment. To the, one man said this, To the end of his, days, uh, of his days, Nehemiah retained the same zeal that mobilized the Jews to rebuild the walls and that made him intervene to abolish the exploitation of the poor and that also allowed him to go up against the opposition. Remember Sanballat and Tobiah and all the other Arabs that were against him? But I like what he, that guy said, with the same zeal. The same zeal that he had at the beginning is what you see today at the end of his ministry, of his leadership. The same zeal. He wasn't a flash-in-the-pan leader. 
He lived a long life, and he stayed focused on the original vision that God had given to him, and that was the restoration of Jerusalem. Not only physically, the walls, but the people. And that's what we're going to deal with today, the people. By the way, this is the last chapter of the book, and it's about perseverance. Again, I would say this, this might be then considered the most important chapter of the book. See, because if I, if I started going through and saying, okay, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, okay, he did good, he left, problems, but he, you never see him again. But this is the book of how he ended. <clears throat> I would say this is the most important chapter. I remember one, one person telling me a while back, he, he, he realized I was uh, studying Nehemiah, and he said, well, the only, you know, like the most important parts of that book are in the first part. And I'm thinking, no, it isn't. The most important part of the Nehemiah is the end of the book. How did it all end up? How did it all work out? So this is a very, very important chapter. It's not just how we start, it's how we finish that counts. I think of the great Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Remember what he says? Now this is him in in a Roman prison. About ready to be, as tradition says, beheaded. He says, I'm already being poured out. And this is 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul speaking. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, that's his death, has come. But, but notice what he says. I've fought the good fight. In other words, I've been a good soldier, because soldiers fight. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I'm, I've been a good athlete. The Christian, race, uh, the Christian life is a race. I've finished the race. And I have kept the faith. That's an allusion to a, a guardian, a guardian of truth. I've kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Could that be said of you? I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. By the way, those verb tenses are, uh, the idea is a completed action with continuing results. Because Paul fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith, they had residual effect on people. We are just running this race and we're passing the baton. And the older you get, the more you realize that, don't you? Man, don't blow it in the last part of your life. You know how many people in Scripture in the last years of their life, that's when they blew it? Run the race well to the end. It has residual results. So, but Paul says this, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's the residual for him. Not only people around him seeing the godly example, the baton being passed of faith, but also there's a reward waiting for me. And if we run well and finish well, there's a reward. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That's the Bema. And not only to me, but all, also to all who have loved his appearing. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. And again, to the end. And this is what you see with Nehemiah. He stays faithful to the end of his ministry. And again, I'm not going to just say Leadership. It was a ministry, it was an appointment that God gave to him. Aroused the interest in Susa, went and uh, uh, helped the Jerusalem, the Israelites in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. It wasn't just leadership, it was a ministry. God needed the man, God needs you. Well, I, I, be careful I'm saying that. God wants to use you, how about that? Isn't that great? Isn't it great to know that God wants to use you? Isn't it a great privilege to be in ministry? Is that true? It is such a great privilege to serve the King of Kings. You have the great privilege of serving Him. 
And yet some who have that great privilege, you've been saved, brought into his family, given a gift, and you don't use it. Wow. In no way can you say that's faithful. That's not faithful. God has given you a a ministry. Are you accomplishing it? I trust you are. Well, let's go to the text. It says, on that day, and I think all the versions pretty much say that, on that day, um, they read from the book of uh, Moses, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books, uh, in the hearing of all the people. Because again, the book of Moses was synonymous with the Pentateuch. Uh, by the way, the, the Jerusalem people, or the uh, Israelites, read on like a uh, reading schedule, a calendar. So they were reading out of the book of Moses, uh, which is a, in, something important for us to remember. We need to get in the book. We've said that many, many times through this series. Because it's through the Word of God that we are confronted with our own selfishness and sin. And we need to get in the book. And many of us do not get into the book on a regular basis. But they were reading in the book of, the, of Moses. And in a moment, you're going to find out they were reading in Deuteronomy 23, verses 23 to 6. In other words, we can identify exactly where they were reading based on their response. But that will be in a moment. But let's first of all just determine, what does it mean, on that day? On that day? What do you mean, what day? Well, actually, from... The last verse in chapter 12, again, verse uh, 46, to the first verse in chapter 1 of 13, chapter 13, verse 1, there is a long, uh, there is a, a amount of time. So he's saying on that day, he's not referring back to chapter 12, but he's actually referring to when Nehemiah became governor for the second time, Okay? See, Nehemiah in 444 or 445, depending on how you uh, calculate, 444, he becomes governor of Jerusalem the first time. That's when the walls are being built. By the way, that is when the prophetic clock of Daniel's 70th week, 70 weeks starts. And we won't go into that, only to say that was a momentous day in the, in, in the life of the, uh, Israel, Israel as a nation, 444 B.C. But this, on that day, is, is the second time he becomes governor. What do you mean, second time? Well, if you go to uh, chapter 5, verse 14. Go back to chapter 5. Because I, I just want you to see this so you get the picture. And this is where he's talking about his, uh, his uh, generosity. Remember, Nehemiah was a very generous man. For 12 years, he ruled in Jerusalem the first time. And he says that in verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, well, it take 20 to 32nd. What is that? That's 12 years. Neither I nor my brother ate the food allowance of the governor. See, he was the governor between the 20th and 32nd year. That's 12 years. He was governor of Jerusalem for 12 years. And it was in those 12 years that all of chapters 1 through 12 happened. Actually, chapters 1 through 12 all happened in the first year of that 12 years. Now, if you go over to chapter 13, verse 6, we're going to see this in a moment, but in verses 1 to 5, there are some problems in Jerusalem. 
But look at what he says. Verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king. So what had happened is he was there for 12 years. There was an extended amount of time that he was not in Jerusalem, and now chapter 13 picks up where he's governor again. So on that day, there was an absence. By the way, in his absence the people went astray to their former ways again. Okay. And they were led by the high priest Eliashib. You see that in verses 4 and 5. Such a defection called for the needed reforms that we're going to see in chapter 13. Now, I will say this. It was during the time that Nehemiah was gone that most likely, and I'm going to say most likely, underline, most likely, that Malachi the prophet preached, prophesied, wrote his uh, four chapters of Malachi. Okay, so you have you have uh, Nehemiah uh, getting the burden, going to Jerusalem, uh, governor for twelve years. He leaves for amount of time. Is it one year? Is it twenty? We don't know, but I have an idea. During that time, Malachi basically steps in, spiritual leader, writes Malachi, Nehemiah comes back, that starts chapter 13. And that also means this, that chapter 13, verse 31, okay, the last verse of Nehemiah, the last verse of chapter 13, the last verse of Nehemiah, is really the last word of the Old Testament. Okay, Because Malachi had actually been written before Nehemiah returned. The last word is, remember me, oh my God, for good. Which is actually what is the title of your bulletin. Okay, We always have a header. It's kind of just neat how, how the Old Testament, in that sense, ended in a prayer. Okay. So, how many years? How many years between the first 12 and then this last... Chapter 13. How many years was he gone out of Jerusalem? Well, I got, <laughs> as I read a few commentary, you know, the, uh, the gamut goes from him returning in 430, which would put it about one year. In other words, he leaves and a year later he comes back. I find that kind of hard to believe because of all the things that were happening and because it took about two or three months to go one direction. You know, you didn't hop on a flight, right? <laughs> this is long and arduous. Uh, just to get from Susa back to Jerusalem, or Jerusalem to Susa. So, how many years? Well, some say it could have been as late as 425 or 420. If it's 420, that would have been about, like, um, let's see here, uh, 44, you know, 20-some years later. Hmm. Probably that's too long. Well, let's just say it this way, though. You know, I was thinking about this. Let's say the guy, let's say it's about 10 years. Again, we don't know. I'm not... I, I tend to think it's around the 5 to 10 year range. Uh, just because of the problems and how things worked out and some of the same players are there and stuff like that. I don't think it's one year in between. I think it's probably a little more than that. But we don't know. But, you know, let's say the guy comes to Jerusalem when he's 40. He's there for 12 years. That puts him at 52. He leaves for uh, 5 10 years. He's returning when he's like 60. 60 plus. 
which I find interesting in two things. One is, notice his energy. I want you to notice his energy through chapter 13. Just notice his energy. But the second thing is the fact that he's there. So many people drop out. He, he stays focused. And I understand health, and I understand, you know, we, we start losing energy, right? that true? Like if you're 55, 60, 65, 70, but it, is it true that you don't have as much energy when you're, as when you're 25? But the point was he still took the challenge. He still took the challenge. He still was ministering for God and in a very difficult situation because to go from Susa back to Jerusalem where it was months of travel, you know, on the camel. So that wasn't uh, easy, but he took the you know, assignment from God. So he's, he's in his 60s, possibly even mid-60s. But he kept strong and step, kept strong for what God had for him. And he, and he now comes to Jerusalem and, and finds the same old problems. Really, if you start looking at that, other than the uh, first fruits, the firstborn, everything else is exactly the same, pretty much as they had the problems twelve or uh, two to five years earlier, ten years earlier, whenever it was. In other words, you know, they made the covenant. That was that was eleven years before he left, but they made the covenant. That was chapter nine, ten, eleven. We looked at all that. You know, we will do this. We will serve you, God. We will. He comes back, and they're in the same state. You know, it's like the parent who talks to the kid, no, you don't do that. Mommy, Daddy, I will not do that again. Two days later, still doing it. You know, prone to wander. <laughs> Very prone to wander. So he's, he's dealing with the same problems. Again, Malachi has come. He has preached to them too. Um, but it's, these are the problems. The absence of godliness, the corrupt priesthood, the prevalence of foreign marriages. <clears throat> I mean, we're, we're going to break this all down. But the same old problems. People need godly leadership. That's what's blaring out in this chapter. People are followers. We need godly leadership. Thankfully, in the church of Jesus Christ, you don't get just one leader. You get a plurality called elders. Because people need godly leadership. I like what General Booth of the Salvation Army, you know, he was the founder of Salvation Army. He used to say, apparently, to his young new officers, he would say this, I want you young men to always bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred. You must keep it fed. You must remove the ashes if you're going to keep that fire going strong. Well, Nehemiah discovered the same thing, that the, the fire, the devotion, <laughs> the devotion of the Israelites had grown cold. He's going to stir it up, and he's going to do it in a marvelous way. Well, let's look at some of these problems. Let's look at some of these things that he has to deal with. Again, we go back to verse 1. First of all, it's Israel's banishment of foreigners. Because again, in verse 1, on that day they read from the book of the law. Again, they're reading in Deuteronomy 23. And they read this, and it was, it was that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, now notice their response. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those foreign, of foreign descent. 
Again, back in Numbers 22 to 25, you see how um, the Ammonites and the Moabites tried to destroy Israel. First didn't let them pass, then tried to destroy them with Balaam. And there was an actual curse in Deuteronomy. They're not to be part of the temple. And yet, apparently, over time, what they, see, they weren't just using the Levites and the priests as far as the temple, in the temple. But, they, but when they heard the book of the law, they realized they were allowing the uh, Ammonites and the Moabites to minister in the temple. And as soon as they heard the word of God, what did they do? They didn't rationalize it. You're gone. <laughs> nope, you're not going to minister here. In other words, upon hearing God's word on the matter, they obeyed. Let me add a word. They obeyed immediately. Immediately. You know, sometimes, um, you know, this obedience, immediate obedience, immediate obedience. You know, I watch parents. I've, I've seen it in my own life at times. Now, come on, Johnny. No, Johnny, I want you to come over here, Johnny. No, Johnny, no, no I'm going to count to three, Johnny. Johnny, this is my last warning. Let me just ask you, is that immediate obedience? (laughs) Sometimes I wish I had a whacker. So I could spank the parent. Boy, that's pretty severe. No, because you're, you're training your child not to listen to God. How about, is that severe? See, God doesn't do that. He wants immediate obedience. I just find this interesting that they heard and these foreigners were part of the temple worship and Israel said, nope, if God says it, we're going to move in a different direction. So that's the first one. Israel's banishment of foreigners. That wasn't done by Nehemiah. That was actually just done by Israel. They just heard the word of God. Isn't that just a crazy way I just said it? They just heard the word of God. The powerful, sufficient word of God, and it changed them. That's how it should be for us, right? We hear and we obey. How about the second one? Nehemiah's encounter with Tobiah. Verse 4, this is, the, this is where Nehemiah picks up the narrative for himself. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, now he's the head priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Debiah. Wait, now, wait, wait who's Debiah? Well, go to chapter, chapter 2. Now you know if you've been in the study. Chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Tobiah the Ammonite. Uh-oh. See, that was a guy that... No, wait, they're not supposed to be in the temple. In fact, verses 1 to 3 is probably referring to Tobiah. It's not just other people. It's, wait, what is he doing in the temple? By the way, in, in chapter 2, verse 10, Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. He saw about Sanballat and Tobiah. They were enemies of Israel. Tobiah was an enemy of Israel. He's an Ammonite. Not just because he's an Ammonite, because he, it says he, he didn't want the best for them. But let's just look at a few other things. Just as a reminder, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 19. Again, we'll just, we'll just pick out Tobiah, not all the other people. Tobiah the Ammonite servant, okay? They jeered at us and despised us. What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? In other words, they were divisive. Tobiah was a divisive man. How about chapter 4, verse 3? 
Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, referring to the wall, if a fox goes up on it, it will break them down. He was trying to discourage the Jews. How about verse 7? It says, uh, Tobiah, what did they do? Heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being, uh, beginning to be closed. They were very angry. Angry that God was working for the Jews and the, the walls were being built. In other words, Tobiah was a very, very bad man. <laughs> very evil. Well, let's read, continue to read in chapter 13, verse 4, where we're in our text. So, he was related to Tobiah. Hmm. Verse 5, and prepared for Tobiah a large chamber, i.e. in the temple, where they had previously put the grain offering and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of grain and wine and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levite singers, gatekeepers, and contributions for the priests. See, what it was is the temple... The way the temple was built, they had these storage areas around the main, what you think of as the temple, okay, the, the court, and then you are uh, the holy and the holy of holies. But around there, there was these storage, because when the uh, tithes and offerings of grain and everything were brought in, they were put in those storage areas. Well, what had happened is they cleaned out some of those rooms. Come on, Tobiah, you can live right here. Do you see how in the front that was? While this was taking place, verse 6, I was not in Jerusalem. There again. But I went to the king to go back. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And no, no, Verse 7, and I then discovered the evil. And, and I love Nehemiah because he's willing to call evil, evil. <laughs> Do we always call evil, evil in our society? No. Do Christians always call evil, evil in our society? No, sometimes we don't. We back down because it may not sound right. But I discovered the evil that Eliashib had, had done for Tobiah, preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. By the way, the, it's plural, courts. Some, uh, one guy was saying, well, you know, I, his belief is that it wasn't just one room, it might have been a multiple of rooms that were being used by Tobiah. It was almost like his flat. <laughs> His penthouse, as it were, you know? I mean, he was evil. Especially in, for what Deuteronomy 23 says. No Ammonite should be ministering in the temple. Certainly no Ammonite should be ministry or uh, living in the temple. See, the point is this. Tobiah could oppose God's work while posing to assist it. He's posing, to, you know, pose. He's playing out like he's assisting God's work. He's right there. He's probably being encouraging to the priests and stuff. But the point is, is that he can undermine the work of God by being there. That's how, that's how, that's how Satan works. Takes people, by the way, weaves them in. That's why in Scripture there's a lot of times where you hear about the wheat and the tares. You want to do a lot of damage? See, it's... It doesn't do much damage to Christianity when you have a person, and let's say, not that it is, but, you know, it's obvious. This person does not believe that Jesus Christ is God. Well, that can be an argument. But you get a person in the body, stirring up problems in the body. I think of 1 Timothy 1, among whom are Hymenaeus, 
Hymenaeus and Alexander. Remember those two guys? Problems, big problems. That's First uh, Timothy, First Timothy, the book of First Timothy. Second Timothy, Hymenaeus is also mentioned. Now he doesn't have Alexander any longer. I don't know if Alexander died or what happened to Alexander, but now it's Hymenaeus and Philetus. Kind of his, uh, Alexander's replacement. But this is what it said of Hymenaeus. And their talk will spread like gangrene. The, the talk there is false teaching. They wove themselves in, like Paul says to the Ephesian elders, there's going to be problems from without, but from among, among you, they'll be like ravenous wolves. Yeah, you got to... Elders need to protect the body of believers from false teaching. By the way, you also have to protect the body from divisive character. People who have divisive character. What does it say? For the divisive person in uh, Titus chapter uh, 3, give them one warning, give them a second warning, and then it says have nothing to do with them. Well, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the elders. speaking to leaders. To the immoral, 1 Corinthians 6, it says this, not to even eat with the immoral person. Why? Because you don't want to show acceptance and fellowship with a person who is immoral that says he's a believer, says he's a brother in Christ. See, it's not just the Tobias. There's people that Satan, you know, his people, <laughs> that try to he seeks to destroy the church, not from without, but from within. So Tobiah has to be dealt with. Let me give you a couple other, one other thing too. Uh, in his response, you're going to see this, that authority, judgment, and condemnation must be based on the word of God. In other words, why is it right for Nehemiah to call what happened with Eliashib by bringing Tobiah into the temple area? Why did he call it an evil thing? Why was he able to call it an evil thing? Because he was basing it off of the word of God found in Deuteronomy 23. So if you're going to have authority, if you're going to be able to make a judgment, and if you're going to be able to condemn an action, and I'm going to use the word action carefully, then it better be based on the word of God. Sometimes we try to make judgment calls based on our own, I'll use these words, preference. I don't care about your preference. Tell me what the word of God says, right? By the way, you shouldn't care about my preference. It's immaterial. I have certain preferences on music. I have certain preferences on many things in my life. It's not preferences we're dealing with here. We're talking about outright disobedience to what the Word of God says. He was able to call it an evil thing because he knew what Deuteronomy 23 had just said. Okay? It was being read to the people. And notice his response, verse 8. I was... Well, what does the next two words say? I was... Well, my version says this. Very angry grieved me bitterly, I guess another version says. And, and, and you see this word found in chapter 5, verse 6, and 13, verse 17, and a couple more verses we'll see. I mean, this guy's an angry man. <laughs> He's just an angry guy. By the way, it grieved him bitterly, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Now, can you imagine? I wish I had a video of that. By the way, does that mean he as a 62, 65-year-old did it all? No, he, but you know, I, in other words, I'm overseeing all this and I had it all thrown out. Boy, that's pretty extreme. That's pretty radical. Hey, we're talking about the Word of God here. 
<clears throat> and then I gave orders, I command, in other words, that they cleanse the, that they, uh, they cleanse the chambers, they being his servants. By the way, that's in the intensive. Uh, they probably cleansed it both ceremonially, and, and one guy said this, even fumigation, probably the smell. They didn't want a trace of Tobiah left in that temple. You know, because they would burn incense and everything else. It took some time, you know. So they probably fumigated the whole thing and then ceremonially got it clean. That's pretty intense. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. But the point I want to make is, in application, he was angry. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 4? Be angry and what? Sin not. We need to be angry at times. I'm not saying you walk around as an angry man. David in Psalms 4.4 said, Be angry and do not sin. That's actually where Paul borrowed Ephesians 5.4.26 from. See, anger is not always a sin. No, anger a lot of times is a sin. Colossians 3 talks about don't be angry. Put off anger. Put off malice. But there's a time to be angry. That's what Ephesians is talking about. Be angry, don't sin. Be angry, don't sin. There's a time to be angry. I like what Paul Tripp, actually this week in his, uh, if you don't get Paul Tripp's, uh, what, Wednesday's Word, I think it is. This week in Paul Tripp Wednesday Word, he actually talked about anger. It's pretty interesting. But, but he had this statement. He said, this is the principle when it comes to anger. This is a biblical principle. The biblical acceptability of your anger, in other words, if it's biblically acceptable of your anger, depends upon the law which you are angrily defending. The biblical acceptability of your anger is, depends on which law are you defending. In other words, do you, get, do you get angry because your law has been violated? The kingdom of self, the kingdom of I want my way. Is that why you got angry? You got angry because something you wanted you couldn't get? Or something you didn't want to have happen to you, happened to you? See, was that the law that was violated or was it the law of God? When it comes to the law of God, we should get angry. There should be an intensity in our, in our actions. Think about Jesus. Twice it records him cleaning out the temple. But notice the law that was being violated there. It says in verse 16, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Whose house? My father's house. Jesus was angry. Jesus was righteously angry. Angry? Why? Because it was the Father's law that was being violated. It was the Father's house that was being violated. So the biblical acceptability of your anger depends upon the law which you're angrily defending. Which law are you defending? We too often get all upset about our own selfish kingdom being violated. I like how one guy said it. Deep-seated wrongs are seldom corrected except by people who have first become sufficiently angry. You've got to get righteously angry. It's not the, for the complacent to change things and the cool and the compromiser. It's, and if you look at all that's happening in our world, all that's happening in America. Wow, are we angry? I'm not, I'm not telling you walk around as an angry man, angry woman. I'm saying that there's an emotional tug on your heart. This is wrong. Well, I guess in that sense you are. Let's look at the third. I see time is slipping away. And I have made the promise we will finish Nehemiah 13. Did I ever tell you the time frame though? His encounter with Judah's officials. 
Verse 10, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. Well, no wonder. The storeroom was being used by Tobiah. There was no place to store it. So that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. In other words, they had to go back to making, you know, planting their own fields because tithes and offerings for their sustenance, uh, for their survival was not being given. Then look at his, look at this angry man. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God, of, of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Wow, man, he's a man who took charge. He rebuked them. That's what the word confronted or contended with. He could... And what did he do? Then all Judah brought the tithes into the grave. <laughs> this guy is great. Hey, this is wrong. And he is able to bring them to conviction based on the word of God and say, and then they brought it in. And at the end of it, just for time's sake, end of 13, he put in charge those for they were considered reliable. He put in men. Basically, he put in a, uh, a scribe, a priest, a Levite, and a layman who were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful, and he puts in faithful men. And then he ends in verse 14 with, a, with his first of four prayers in this chapter. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember me, Lord. See that the, the actions, my actions have been right before you. See, by him praying that, he's saying, listen, sure I was really angry. Sure I threw the scoundrel stuff out of the house, God's house. Remember me, Lord, I did it for your name. How about the fourth incident? Verses 15 to 22. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. This is his encounter with the Sabbath breakers. And he's really confronting like three different groups. First of all, uh, the first group is 15 and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys. It was the people that were the actual farmers. They were just doing work on the Sabbath. And he warned them. Last part of verse 15, I warned them on that day when they sold food. Because they were just bringing it in. Verse 16, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath. So these weren't Jews. These were just people from another town bringing their goods in. And then verse 17, I confronted the nobles because the nobles weren't the farmers. They were the ones that were allowing all this. See, it's one thing to be the farmer. It's another thing to be the guy that's in charge. So he confronted... He's just an angry guy. (laughs) He must just be an old man that's frustrated with life. You know, that's how... I, I, would, I would be afraid to see how sometimes Christianity would respond to Nehemiah in this day and age. He's just ungodly. He's just upset about everything. No, he's, he is godly. That's why he is upset. He confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing? Again, that's the same wording as verse 7 that you are doing, profaning, polluting, that's in the PL, in the intensive, profaning the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers act this way, and did not our, our God bring all this disaster on us? He's referring to the Babylonian captivity. Hey, listen, they violated the Sabbath. You know what happened to them? They're gone for 70 years. You think it's any better for us? God is faithful. God is just. God is consistent. So verse 19, as soon as I, it began to grow dark at the gate, this is his response. 
See, he's not only confronted them, but now I, command, I commanded them that the door should be shut, locked. And he gave orders that they should not be opened. And I stationed some of my servants at the gate. So he locked, locked the doors, but he's not going to just trust that the doors be locked. He's going to station some of his people right there. And verse 21, I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? He's talking to the probably Tyrenians at that point. You know, the people that are trying to get into Jerusalem. Don't get, and for one or two days, they, you know, they didn't believe me, but they saw I was serious. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates, not only his servants, but then now the Levites, and to keep the Sabbath day. And then he prays a second time in this chapter, remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Lord, I'm doing this for you. Do you think Nehemiah was the guy, type of guy who could uh, win friends and influence people? He probably didn't have a lot of friends, but he certainly influenced people because they followed him. So, how about the last encounter? By the way, in this all encountering thing, I like what John White said. He says, in Christian work, our cowardice in avoiding unpleasantness is currently doing more damage than damage than any damage from. I just came across a new word. Irrescribility. No, irrescribility. Huh? Is that how you say it? Irrascibility? Means hot temperedness. In other words, what he's saying is this our lack of getting intense is doing more damage than the times when we do get intense and get angry. I would agree with him. I don't want to offend anybody. And he ends by saying this on the whole, it doesn't. I mean, he said, the church has become flabby, old womanish, inept, unwilling to act. <laughs> Discipline should be reconciliatory and loving, but it should take place. And on the whole, it doesn't. Who are, we who, condone, who are we who condone every manner of evil in our midst to criticize one of those rare leaders who does, who does not hesitate to act when the integrity of God's temple is in question? Stop acting like a woman. And I don't mean that derogatorily. No, I don't. I really don't. You're going to see that in one minute. I know. You got your apples, right? You got your rotten apples? I'm not trying. Okay. Just give me a couple minutes, ladies, then you can throw them. He encounters the last ones. They violate mixed messages. Or mixed <laughs> marriages. <laughs> yeah, in marriages there are mixed messages. <clears throat> Verse 23. And in those days, again, all this refers to the second time he's the governor. Also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, Moabite. Wow. And look at this. And half of their children spoke their language. Couldn't even speak Hebrew. That's in the intensive. Couldn't even speak Hebrew. How are they going to learn the law of God? How are they going to hear the word of God? Well, he was nice this time around, at least. And they could not even speak the language of Judah. See, they weren't bilingual. They only had one language, and it wasn't the Hebrew, half of the kids. Yeah, like I said, he was kind of nice. Verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them, that's intensive, and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons and take your, their daughters for your sons or for yourself. Wow. And he was kicked out of Jerusalem. No, he was a leader. By the way, I'm not advocating, I, you know, I'm not going to pull any of your hair. But you know, do we get intense when it comes to sin? 
Or do we, let's say it this way, maybe we've mischaracterized Jesus. Maybe we've mischaracterized the Lord that we serve. I'm, I'm reading this book. The book's name is, let's see here, what is the book's name? It's The Jesus You Can't Ignore. It's actually by John MacArthur. And there's this one chapter where he says this, when it's wrong to be nice. When it's wrong to be nice. And he writes about uh, the common theme in this postmodern America that we live in, how we have to be nice, we don't want to be confrontational, we want to be conversational, we don't want to have conflict. You know, less aggressive, less preachy, less sure of what you really believe. It's really the word academic. What do you mean academic? Well, I looked it up. Academic, and I'll get it in a moment. But academic means, oh, here it is. The definition of academic, if you go down through some of the definitions, is, is this. Now, catch this. Belonging to the realm of, the scho- of scholastic theory and intellectual inquiry where certainty is always inappropriate. See, America has become academic in the sense that, well, we sit around in the lounges and talk about this theory and that theory, but we're never going to come to a conclusion. No, no. There is right and there is wrong. So you take abortion, it's wrong. You take homosexuality, it's wrong. You take lust, it's wrong. Always. No, you take anger, it may be or may not. But the point is... So he says, how do we look at Jesus... He was studying through the book of Luke, and he said this. Practically the opposite pattern existed in Christ. Jesus' interaction with the religious experts of his time was rarely cordial. From the time Luke first introduces us to the Pharisees in Luke 5 until the final mention of the chief priests and rulers in Luke 24, every time the religious elite of Israel appear as a group in Luke's narrative, they, in, there is conflict. Often Jesus himself deliberately provokes the hostilities. When he speaks to the religious leaders or about them, whether in public or private, it is usually to condemn them as fools and hypocrites. You read that often. When he knows they are watching to accuse them of breaking their artificial Sabbath restrictions of their man-made systems of ceremonial washing, he deliberately defies their rules. On one occasion, when he was expressly informed that his denunciations of the Pharisees were insulting to the lawyers, the leading Old Testament scholars, Jesus immediately turned to the lawyer and fired off, basically, woe to you. The point is this. Jesus was not nice. Jesus was not nice. He dealt with the most respected religious figures in the land. He took on their errors boldly and directly and sometimes even holding them up to ridicule. He wasn't nice to them by any postmodern standard. And he ends by saying this, It is surely significant that the approach Jesus took in dealing with religious error is so sharply different from, from the methods favored by most in the church today. By the way, I am not advocating at all being just sarcastic and bullish and in-your-face and brutish and all this other stuff. All I'm saying is there's times where we just have to speak the truth. And that's what Nehemiah did. And look at verse 26. He even used the illustration of Solomon. Hey, Solomon, he married foreign wives. Look at great Solomon. Look at what damage it did to his life, his ministry, his kingship. And then he ends in verse 29 with, Remember them. Probably this is the grandson in Sandbell. Oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, verse 30, I cleansed them from every foreigner, from everything foreign. In other words, I took care of it. And then that last final part of the verse, 
is the last part of Old Testament. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Remember me, Lord. Because when it's all said and done, and I stand before me, stands before you at the Bema, it's not going to matter what you guys think or what this church, and this is how it is for all of us, you're the one that matters because you're going to judge me according to my faithfulness if I kept the faith. So let me end with just four quick uh, applications, imperatives. This is the bottom line. Overcome passivity. <laughs> because passivity, quote, is an enemy. can't be passive. Look at what Nehemiah did. First of all, he was in submission to God. <clears throat> his only plan for his life was not as I will, but as you will. And that's what the Lord prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. Don't be passive, Lord. Keep our eyes in submission to what God says in his word. That's the first. Number two, Nehemiah's courage to act decisively or decidedly. (laughs) He was serving God, not man. Therefore, he was unafraid to act boldly. In Corinthians 16, Paul says to the Corinthian church, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Now, ladies, you can throw your tomatoes if you want. Because now Paul just said it. He's telling the act like men. What do you mean act like men? What, is it wrong to be a woman? No, no. But there's times when a man needs to act like a man. We need to be bold and courageous against error. Act like men. I thought about it in my own. Don't act like an infant. Don't act like a baby. Don't act like a boy. Don't act like a woman. Be heroic. Be fearless. I'm not saying a woman can't be heroic and fearless. But don't back down. And I think, and I thought about my own life, and sometimes I back down out of convenience. We need to have men. By the way, we will lose our country if men don't act like men. You do understand that, right? We will lose our country. But this is not talking about country here. This is talking about Christianity. This is about our faith. This is even more important. Be courageous to act decidedly. That's how Nehemiah. By the way, those who act like men, oh, they'll be criticized, mocked, condemned, misunderstood, but stand for truth. Number three, Nehemiah dealt with the wrongs and problems severely. He didn't care what people thought. In other words, I don't care because I answer to God and God alone. He might appear to be angry, cranky, contentious, abusive, a fighter. He, He was a godly man who said, this is truth. Deal with wrongs, deal with them severely. And then finally, Nehemiah worked towards permanent solution. See, in in verse 25, he didn't just say what you do wrong, but then he says, I made them take an oath in the name of God. One of the principles we learn in the New Testament, very, very clear principle, is when you put something off, there's also something else you have to put on. It's a put-off, put-on Principle and the idea is this. If you really want to deal with your sin, you have to replace it. You have to replace it. When is a liar no longer a liar? What? When he tells the truth. You just replaced it. When is a thief no longer a thief? When he gets a job, grace in his heart, to give to the one in need. You just replaced it. When Nehemiah led the revival, there was always a replacement. We can learn from that type of leader. So again, act like a man. By the way, women, act brave. I hope you understand the context I'm giving all this. But as in the church, we need to be brave, right? We are coming upon, if it wasn't ever before, it is now. 
where our society is going to keep pressuring us and pressuring us to capitulate to their standard. And we may lose a lot, and some of us may even end up in jail or worse. Oh, I thought that would never come to my generation. I think it's coming right around the corner. The question is, are we going to be brave and courageous for the truth of God? Right? Now again, I'm not advocating telling you pull out someone's hair. All I'm saying is, are you going to stand for truth? Will you? I trust you will. Let's stand as we close in worship. Oh, there's no word. No. Stand. (laughs) I was going to say there's no worship song. By the way, let me just remind you. As you hear the word of God, that's the center point of worship. Right? We've been just worshiping for 50 minutes, 55 minutes. It's not just the singing. Father, again, we thank you for your word. I just know for me it's been very instructive as far as how I need to respond to you, respond to others, stand for truth. Father, I pray that we be brave and courageous. Help us to stand for truth, especially as it pertains to, in comparison to our society and our family. Um, Lord, help us to, as Corinthians says, act like men. And Father, again, we thank you for the fact that you are sovereign. And as Nehemiah closed out his, the book, he asked that you would remember him. Oh my God, for good. And Father, we just pray that we keep that in the forefront of our mind, that whatever we're doing, you're going to remember. And we stand before you someday for reward. And so we ask that we would be faithful until that day. In Jesus' name, amen.